expressions, everyone. Blessed are those you choose to live in your courts. We are filled with the good things of your hands. You answer us with awesome deeds of righteousness. Oh God, praise awaits you. guy who uh who loves movies 
And uh, I find that, though, as I'm getting a little bit older, it's harder to actually make it through the whole movie if it starts any time after uh, 7 p.m., but I still love movies. And uh, one of my favorite movies is The Lord of the Rings. Is there any Lord of the Rings fans in the crowd today? Yeah, a few. And uh, everything in that story is just so big and great and grand, like starting from the storyline of being called to take this ring and take it to Mount Doom and and destroy it, uh, to the Fellowship of the Ring having to go into the depths of uh, the Mount Mount Moriah and uh, and then coming out and, and, and climbing these huge mountains. Just the cinematography in this movie is just, it's amazing and I just love watching it. It Something big like that calls out to me. One of the great scenes I love in the movie is, uh, is right at the end of The Return of the King, and everyone's gathered outside the fortress of uh, Minas Tirith, and they're, they're there for the coronation of the king, Aragorn. There's thousands in attendance, and, uh, and Gandalf comes with the crown, places it on Aragorn's head, and says, Now comes the days of the king. May they be blessed. And all the people, the thousands that are there in attendance, start cheering. And it's just this joyful gathering of people for their new king. I love this scene just because there's such joy and happiness. And, they, and the people have gone through such hard times. If you think of the war that was going on for many years uh, in their realm. And now they're just so happy to think now there'll be a time of peace under a new king. And we're here to rejoice. This morning, we're going to look briefly at Psalm 65. And in this psalm, instead of a crowd gathering around Ministerith, we're looking at a crowd that's gathering in the Lord's temple. And instead of gathering around a new king to rejoice, they're gathering to praise their God who has, uh, has brought them abundant blessing and goodness to them. In this time that we are experiencing currently of unrest in the world. My hope is that this psalm, Psalm 65, will give you some hope in a God who delivers and provides for his people, and that it would prepare our hearts as well to go to the table and be thankful for the God who provides for us so abundantly. And so we start this psalm in in verse 1, and we're reminded that the people are coming to worship the Lord and praise God because he's a God of grace. The scene of the psalm, again, it's at the temple courts. There's been rough times for the people, and it's been, we're going to learn, it's because of their own sin. Maybe there's been a drought, maybe there's been a famine, but now the Lord is providing for them, and they're coming back. Verse 1 says, Praise awaits you, O God, in Zion. To you our vows will be fulfilled. So what, what does it mean, do you think, that people are coming to fulfill their vows to God? If you read Psalm 65, and if you read several other psalms in and around 65, you'll see that the theme of bringing their vows or completing their vows is common. In Psalm 61, verse 8, the psalmist writes, Then I will ever sing in praise of your name and fulfill my vows day after day. In Psalm 56, the psalmist writes, I am under vows to you, my God. I will bring or I'll present my thank offerings to you. And then in Psalm 66, the one that immediately follows the one we're looking at today, in verse 13 and 14, I will come to your temple with burnt offerings and fulfill my vows to you. Vows my lips promised and my mouth spoke when I was in trouble. When we think of vows today, probably the most common vows we would think of is, is the wedding vows, the vows that, uh, 
the bride and groom make to each other, and they commit to each other that they're going to be faithful to one another until death do they part. But what does it mean then in the Psalms for our vows to be fulfilled? It seems that the people made this vow when they were in a difficult spot. They thought, we are in a really rough time. This is a famine. This is a drought. And they they made one of these prayers. Lord, if you get us through this, we will remember that you are the one that provided for us. And we will come back to your temple and we will praise you for it. So they're bringing their vows. The relationship between God and his people is one of where God is our provider. God is the one who brings us out of drought, out of famine. And we, our job in response, as we receive these blessings, is to come back to him and bring him praise for it. We see in verses 2 and 3 more specifically what they're thankful for. It says, You who answer prayer, to you all people will come. When we were overwhelmed by sins, you forgave our transgressions. So they're thankful to God because he's a God who answers their prayers. He's not just a God who hears prayers. He hears them and he answers them. He hears the cries of his people and he saves them. He provides for them. As a church, we've gone through a series on Daniel, but previous to that, we were in the book of Exodus. And you'll remember in Exodus 2, God's people are in slavery. They've been in slavery for about 400 years. And their cries go out to God. And it says in chapter 2 that he hears them. He heard their groaning. He hears their prayers. He remembered them. And he remembers his covenant, the covenant that he had made with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So the Lord looked on the Israelites and were concerned with them. We serve a God who hears our prayers and answers them. Right after God had heard the groans of his people in chapter 2 of Exodus, goes on to chapter 3, and that's where we read about the famous story of Moses and the burning bush. God immediately enacts this plan to redeem and deliver his people. He sets in motion this plan. Our God is a God who hears our cries, but also replies to them and responds to us. In verse 3, it says, they're overwhelmed with their sins, and then God forgave their transgressions. When we experience the forgiveness of God, the right response is to come before him in worship. I think often, especially for those of us that have grown up in the church, we don't necessarily feel this overwhelming weight of our sin anymore. It's probably because we've become, instead of blue-collar sinners, white-collar sinners. These sins that we can kind of just get away with, the sins of, you know, pride. Well, we all wrestle with pride. It's not that big a deal. Um... It only led to the destruction of Satan. Um, We we deal with other sins like we're not generous. Other sins like we don't practice hospitality like we ought to. And so we don't have this overwhelming weight of sin like the psalmist is saying that God's people felt. And so we miss out on this experience of being forgiven, truly forgiven by God and him showing his love and mercy to us. And so then our praise kind of becomes half-hearted because we feel like the forgiveness is not that big a deal anymore. But when we truly experience God's love, his lavish love and lavish forgiveness, our natural response is to come in praise. We truly feel it. This morning, we're going to have a chance to remember the forgiveness that God has provided us as we go to the table. And when we remember that it was the body of our Lord Jesus that was broken for us and his blood that was poured out for us, The cost of our forgiveness 
was, told, was written about by the Apostle Paul in Romans 3, verse 25. He says, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement or as a propitiation through the shedding of his blood. Our, our blood wasn't good enough for forgiveness of sins. It had to be a savior, someone like Christ. God presented Christ because of his love for us. And he did this to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies. God is just, but he is also the one that justifies us. It's not us on our own. It's Christ who justifies us for those, for not everybody, but for those who have faith in Jesus. And so we need to make sure we have our faith not in our own good works this morning, not that we are pretty good people, but that we have our faith in Christ alone. Our God is a gracious God who forgives, but the price of our sin was Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God. So in Psalm 65, again, we're seeing these people. They come forward because they're experiencing this forgiveness. And now we, in modern times, as a church, we come and we gather together on Sunday mornings to worship and praise the Lord together. And we praise him for his love and forgiveness. So in verses 1 to 4, we see we serve a God and we praise a God of grace, of lavish grace and forgiveness. Then in in verses 5 to 8, we see the psalmist moves in in a different direction a little bit. And uh, I won't read the whole thing here. We've already had it read, but look with me specifically at verse 7. It says that God is the one who stilled the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, and the turmoil of the nations. So God has power over creation. We see this with Jesus in Mark 4 where he calms the seas, but it also says the turmoil of nations. Another English translation other than the NIV, the the ESV translates this, the tumult of the peoples. So God stills not only the inanimate objects of the world, but also peoples. God has control over people and nations. There are many examples of God in the Bible changing the hearts of even kings and rulers. In Exodus, which I just mentioned, we think of Pharaoh, whose heart was hardened by God in order that God might make an example of Egypt and show his his mighty power by saving his people. We also just went through the book of Daniel. So think of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 3, he's building this statue and calling people to worship a statue And then one chapter later, God has changed his heart and humbled him. And Nebuchadnezzar, in his own words, is praising the Most High God, the one who is glorified and lives forever. God is sovereign not just over creation. God is sovereign over kings and rulers. Proverbs 21, verse 1, affirms this when it says, In the Lord's hand, the king's heart is a stream of water that he channels towards all who please him. So let's just, let's think about this for a moment. Let's think about this in, in real life today. It's, it's one thing when it's in the book of Psalms thousands of years ago, but what about, what about today? How does this work out today? Can God change the hearts of kings and rulers? Are there any kings or rulers or presidents that we would desire that God would change their hearts this very moment? We have the leader of one of the most powerful countries in the world 
and Vladimir Putin, who is leading the Russian military into a horrific war in Ukraine. Millions being displaced, many killed, lives changed forever. Why is he doing this? Well, we don't know. It's hard for us to understand. We don't have a lot of the context. And even trying to understand the history of the Soviet Union and all that, it, it might help us understand a little bit better, but still, it seems like it's just the pride of a single man who wants more power and more glory to go to himself. He's not looking out for the best of his people in Russia, and he's certainly not looking out for the best of the people of Ukraine. So what light does God's word, specifically here in Psalm 65, shed for us on how we can both believe and how we can act today in response to this? Well, the first thing I would say is that we need to truly believe that God is sovereign over all things, including human rulers. We can know that even though we don't understand why God allows what he allows, that he does have a purpose for it. In the same way that the people of God in slavery might not have understood why he allowed them to be kept as slaves in Egypt for so many years, not knowing that just a little bit later he was going to redeem them and make his name great and famous and use them to go and bring them to the promised land, they didn't understand until God's plan was revealed. Sometimes we do get to understand things in time, and sometimes we just have, are left with having faith that God knows. But what we can be certain of is that God is sovereign over all things. Every snowflake that falls to the ground, every drop of rain that falls on the earth is allowed to do that only by the hand of God who sits enthroned in heaven. So we need to believe this, that God is truly sovereign. But, that, but this also needs to lead us to action. We need to turn to God in prayer, this psalm teaches us. We need to ask him, based on his power, to change the hearts of evil leaders. Again, Proverbs 21.1, In the Lord's hand it sits the hearts of rulers. In the Lord's hands is Vladimir Putin, the president of Russia. It's not anywhere close to as powerful as the Lord. We need to believe this. We need to pray that God would change his heart. We've seen from verse 2, God is a God who answers prayer. Many people have walked up this morning and each one of these yellow pieces of paper reflects that God has answered prayer. So we need to, as God's people, pray that God would turn the king's heart, turn Putin's heart graciously towards those who are suffering in Ukraine. But let me ask you now an honest question. Do you really believe that prayer makes a difference? Like, do you really believe that prayer changes things? That changes what actually happens? How is it that we believe that God is completely sovereign, knows exactly what's going to happen this afternoon, yet we still feel the need that we're going to pray that God would change something? How do those two things work together? How does prayer really make a difference if we b truly believe in a sovereign God? Well, I think it only makes a difference because we believe in a sovereign God. A number of years ago, I heard a, a message uh, by John Piper, and he's probably the pastor that's most influenced um, my understanding of God out, outside of the Bible in his writings and in his preaching. And this message 
that I heard on prayer really deeply shaped me in how I think about prayer and how I think about a sovereign God. He brought up this, the point that in James 4.2, it's a passage that many of us might not know offhand what it is, but if I said it, you'll know what it is. It says this, you have not because you ask not. Or put another way, you do not have because you did not ask God. Think about what that means for a second. God's inspired word, inspiredly given from a sovereign God to James who wrote this, says you have not because you ask not. We don't have something. There's something that we want to happen in our lives or in the world, and we want it, but it hasn't happened. James 4.2 says, well, the reason it hasn't happened is because you haven't asked for it. You haven't come to me in prayer, in faithful prayer. What he's saying is that prayer causes things to happen that wouldn't happen unless you pray them. There are things that are going to happen or not happen in our lives and in this world. And the reason for that, based on James 4, 2, is because we didn't ask. You have not because you ask not. That's just the logical outworking of this verse. This verse doesn't mean the opposite of what it says. It doesn't say you'd have it anyway, even if you didn't ask just because I have a sovereign plan, says you have not because you ask not. I, with all of you, truly believe in a sovereign God again who oversees all things. I'm not in any way diminishing God's sovereignty in this. But what I'm saying is that the Bible teaches us in a way that's far too hard for us to, to understand in our minds is that somehow our prayers that God asks us to pray, God works in to his sovereign plan that he knew from before the foundation of the earth. And so in response to this, listen to how, how Piper talks about these truths and processes them for us. He says, this is why prayer is a staggeringly glorious privilege to be taken by the sovereign God of the universe who runs all things according to his infinite wisdom and to be folded into this causality. This is breathtaking. If you do not avail yourself of the privilege of bringing to pass events of, in the universe that would not take place if you did not pray, you are acting like a colossal fool. Aren't you? I mean, that's just what, if we're just thinking logically about this, if you're being offered the privilege of engaging with God in such a way that all your requests could bring into being things that would not otherwise have come into being, not to avail yourself of that privilege is folly of the highest magnitude. Through prayer, God invites us into the sovereign outworking of his plan. God answers our prayers, this psalm teaches us. God's absolute sovereignty and our ability to pray and come before him somehow in the mind of God work together the reason why prayer makes a difference is because God is sovereign, because he holds kings in his hand, and because he knows where each and every snowflake that falls or every raindrop that falls, falls on the earth because of his sovereignty. And so when we process, as we process these things that are going on in the world, we need to consider that our prayers will make a difference and can make a difference. We need to have faith to believe this. When Pastor John and Andrea came up this morning and prayed for Ukraine, this isn't just show to take up a few minutes of our morning service. This is because we actually believe 
that God hears our prayers and will change what happens in the world as a result of us coming together as a church and praying these things and saying amen together. This belief needs now to lead each and every one of us to faith-filled, heart-wrenching prayers before our God who uses these prayers to shape the world. So in verses 1 to 4, again, we see that we have this God of absolute grace who forgives the sin of his people. And in verses 5 to 8, we see that he's a God of power, not just of power over the seas, which is amazing, but power over human hearts, kings' hearts, like streams of water in his hand. But then in verses 9 to 13, he is a God of plenty. I'll, I'll read this passage just, and just look at, in verses 9 to 13, the absolute abundance that comes from God's hand. You care for the land, verse 9, and water it. You enrich it abundantly. The streams of God are filled with water to provide the people with grain, for so you have ordained it. There's sovereignty right there. You drench its furrows and level its ridges. You soften it with showers and bless its crops. You crown the year with your bounty, your carts overflow with abundance. The grasslands of the wilderness overflow. The hills are clothed with gladness. The meadows are covered with flocks. The valleys are mantled with grain. They all shout for joy and sing. What's pictured here is not just a God who's scrounging together some sort of blessing for the land and, and for his people. This is a God who, who just has so much that just pours it out on creation and rivers overflow and crops come up and his people sing and rejoice. The words here used, enriched and abundantly, streams are filled, they're drenched, they're leveled, they're blessed, there's bounty, there's overflowing, there's abundance. Things are covered, like it's just, it's just there and so rich. How quickly do we forget the goodness of the Lord in times where we feel like things aren't going the way we want them? Think during difficult times, it's exactly the times that we need to remember how good and gracious our God has been to us. We can, we're more often set to count the things that are working against us and think about those things and we can't, we're losing sleep because of things that are against us but just think about all, all those things that we, we receive from the Lord that we don't deserve. His blessings of work and food and family and provision, shelter, peace in our land. God has just blessed us so abundantly. It's at times like this when the world's kind of going mad that we need to really remember how good God has been to us, his people. As a child, I remember, and I think many of you will remember, the song, Count Your Blessings. Count your blessings, name them one by one. Sing with me. Count your blessings, see what God hath done. Count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your many blessings, see what God has done. We were discipled as kids to know the good hand of God, even if we didn't know Psalm 65. And so I think for us today, probably one of the best uses of your time when you're getting down is just to actually literally make a list, count those blessings, and it may surprise you 
what the Lord has done. As Christians, we have so much to be thankful for. God has been so, so good in ways that we don't deserve. In the midst of these difficult times, it can be easy to despair, but we should take the advice of this old hymn. God has been good to you. Take time to think about all the blessings that he has brought your way. This morning, we do have the table of the Lord's Supper before us. It reminds us, not just of all these other blessings that God has given us, but the most central and most important and most abundant way God has provided for us in the gift of his Son. If you've never received Christ personally, if right now you're living life with faith in your own good deeds, thinking that, yeah, you're probably better than this person or that person that you know, my encouragement to you this morning is to look to Christ. He is the one that God has given us to, me, to make a way to be made right with him. The more we trust in ourselves, the further away from God we will actually get. The gospel tells us that we need to push into God and into Christ in good times and in bad times. And so this morning, again, as we go to the table, just remember we have a God of grace. We have a God of power. And we do have a God of abundant blessing. Let's pray. Lord, I, I just thank you so much for your word that time after time it's just filled with rich teaching and blessing on how you have shown us love to your people of old and to us today. Lord, give us faith to continue to believe and trust in you even in these difficult times that you are a God of grace, that you are a God of power, and that you are a God of abundant blessing. Lord, we thank you and we love you. And we go to the table now with thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen. Next Sunday morning, we're finishing up the book of Daniel in the series Living the Gospel in an Antagonistic Age. I trust you will all be here, spread the news, invite others to come and join us. And now to our Lord Jesus, who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen.